0: So as we hear the news coming out of Australia that um, three U.S. firefighters went down when their C-130, which was attending to the continuing to rage bushfire there in that continent, um, as we receive the news that those three individuals have lost their lives, uh, we are mindful, we are mindful that there are people willing to make the ultimate sacrifice on behalf of others. And so our hearts go out to, even as our prayers go up for the three U.S. families who just made that ultimate sacrifice on behalf of neighbors halfway around the world. Um, And so even as we were just talking with Nikki Seeley from Hillsong Church there in Australia and how the church is responding um, and the outreach not only to firefighters but to first responders and to those who are dealing with the devastation of those bushfires there, we recognize that you know Americans go as well we go to help and so we as a nation uh, have just lost 3 of our fine of our finest uh and 3 us families have just made the ultimate sacrifice on you know on an odd kind of battlefield and so today let's be praying for them actually praying for one another was the subject that i had uh, prepared to talk about here in this opening segment, but I was gonna I was gonna hone in on the concerns of those of us who I would describe in the sandwich generation. You know, we talk about generations uh, in in terms of our age, right? There are uh, there's Gen Z. We're concerned about them; they're growing up right now and into adulthood. Uh, the millennials who are young adults um, who are now giving birth to and raising alpha gen which was is the generation of my grandkids there's my generation we are in the sandwich like right we might have a a designation either as Millennials uh, for those who are on the older end or um, uh, what am I Gen X? right? Uh, And so the whole span of the Gen Xers, we are definitely in the sandwich generation right now. We have both kids and parents who need us and a growing number of grandkids. So we are now sandwich generation people. Parenting is hard at every age and stage. And so as we're praying for one another, let's be praying for one another as parents and as grandparents. These little people are a sacred trust, Um, We are shepherding their hearts. They will one day, hopefully, become our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, and we will live with them in all eternity. So they will not be little forever, and we will uh, be their brothers and sisters in Christ forever. And so, if you're feeling like a failure today, or wondering if you're doing it right, you are not alone. Um, Supporting the health, education, morals, values, relationships, dealing with technology, the changing roles as kids grow, and hopefully also like mature, those rates rates of maturation being different, every child being unique, um, the competition we are in with the world at every turn. I get it. I get it. And so I am praying for you today as a parent, in your role as a parent. You should pray for me in my role as a parent as well. Let us also be praying for one another um, in terms of the issues that we face related you know, to those on the other side of us generationally. And here I'm talking about our parents and for some of us grandparents. Issues related to aging. Man, these issues are difficult as well. Um, how do I continue to um, honor and respect and give just all of the honor that is due, right, to a person who increasingly needs me to be in the role of the parent and they in the role of, of the one um, who needs very much to be served? So, All of those issues related to aging, respect, dignity, resources, worldview. Um, If you have a parent or grandparent who does not know the Lord, and as they age, you know, right? You know that literally time is ticking away. I'm praying for you today because that's a hard place to be. Um, And so let's be lifting one another up in prayer today for all of the issues and concerns that we face related to our kids and related to our parents and grandparents. Um, in both cases, time is short. Time is short for kids to be kids as they mature into adulthood, and we have a great responsibility to help them become um, Christian adults and all that that means in the world today. But time's also running out on the other end for the generations that are uh, leaving this life and moving into an eternal life, either in heaven forevermore or separated from God forevermore. And for those of us who are in Christ, they will therefore be separated from us as well. And so, Time is short, and I recognize that, so let's be looking up to Christ for all of the resources uh, that he bestows upon us by the power of the Holy Spirit, and let us be actively and ardently praying for and supporting one another. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. So, tomorrow uh, is the March for Life. We have talked about, well, yesterday we talked about um, it being National Sanctity of Life Day and the proclamation by the President of the United States that we as a nation are going to honor life from conception to natural death. We have these conversations a lot here on the air because this is an acute point of worldview for us today as Christians. We live in a culture that does not respect. Life as created by God um, on purpose and for his purpose. We live increasingly in a culture that um, says otherwise. And on, on the question of who we are, if you are approaching the answer to that question as if God is not, so if you are asking, Who are we? Who am I as a human being? Who are we as human beings? And you are going to approach the answer to that question as if God is not. Then you are going to arrive at a very different definition of what it means to be human. And you are going to arrive at a very different definition of life, its value, its purpose, its meaning, and to whom it is subject. And so in the same way that if God doesn't exist, racism is not an issue. Um, If God doesn't exist, abortion is not an issue. If God doesn't exist, euthanasia is not an issue. Because if God doesn't exist, this really is the survival of the fittest. And and, and, and actually, it's not even the survival of the fittest. It's the survival of the strongest and the meanest. And so uh, for those of us who are Christians who know that God is, who are in the world to declare that reality to others, to make God known. Um, for those of us living in a generation that's pretty dark when it comes to the issues of life, for us to, be, um, to for us to be living in a country where we have the opportunity or we have the opportunity to march for life, where we have a president who is going to appear um, it, this is unprecedented for for the President of the United States to appear at the March for life I, I, it is hard for me to describe to you how significant an act that is. The president does not lend his credibility to just anything. And the credibility of the office of the president of the United States, when it is lent to a cause, that has a, a magnitude effect um, that ripples out. And so for the president of the United States to take a stand for life, to not only declare a, uh, a national day for the sanctity of life, but then in his speech to say what that means, to say that we are talking about the dignity of a person and the dignity of every person, and for him to then uh, lay out the parameters of that from conception to natural death. When you put, you know, you know me, that is my definition for who I am as a pro life individual. I use that same phrase. That's exactly where I am on this topic. I am pro life from conception to natural death. And that. Uh, description then enables me to approach decision making and approach ethics and approach the actual practice of not only the faith, but medical choices and the conversations that I have with others. It enables me to approach those, those conversations and decisions and say, you know, th- these are the parameters in which I'm operating. So, does this fall into the conversation that, that says life begins at conception and ends at natural death? which means I am not going to be a proponent of those kinds of unnatural ways that we um, seek to in our generation through technology and all kinds of other medical interventions to extend life beyond the point where the person is actually dead. Um, And if being kept alive by machines is, is the way that you perceive to be right and righteous, then you have a different definition of life than I do. So Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. What does that mean and what does that look like and what are the parameters of it? And if I acknowledge the sovereignty of God over all things and I acknowledge that we are created in the image of God on purpose and for a purpose, that he conceived of us in his wildest imagination before the very foundation of the earth, that I am going to look at you and I am hoping that you are going to look at me and you are going to say, God did that on purpose. I don't have to completely understand it but I do have to honor it. And so every life, every single life is honored um, by us all. And that is really what the March for Life is all about. For what would you march? For what would you march in support of and for what would you march against? What breaks your heart or inflames your activism beyond just emailing or retweeting or reposting on Facebook or saying yes in your car as, uh, as, as I get excited about things? What actually moves you to substantive action and the dedication of time, financial resources, and social capital to get off the sidelines and into the streets. You know, over the course of time here in the United States of America, literally millions of people have marched on behalf of all kinds of things. The biggest marches in American history are all against things for which I stand. I I guess I have to tell you, you know, the, the, the women's marches of 2017 and 2018 attracting somewhere in, you know, combined somewhere in the neighborhood of 5 million people. Um, the things for which they were marching are just, there's just not things for which I would march. In in 2018, the March for Our Lives, um, some 2 million students across the country marched in protest of America's gun violence. Would you march for that? Would you be with them in that? In July of this year, more than a million people took to the streets of Puerto Rico, demanding the resignation of their governor. That's a lot of people on the streets. In 2017, the March for Science in D.C. attracted more than a million people, as did the 1993 March in Washington for Lesbian, Gay, and Bi-Equal Rights. In 1982, there was actually something called um, a million, oh no, it was 95, I think, um, the Million Man March. Well, it didn't actually attract a million people. So again, for what would you march? How many people will be marching in Washington, D.C. in the March for Life this year? Well, it will be well short of a million. Um, and so when we think about what we would march for, what we would actually give up time, financial resources, and social capital to participate in, I'm just asking you, for what would you march? What inflames you to the point that you would get off the sidelines of the conversations of the day and invest your own social capital um, in, in raising a voice of protest against something or raising a, uh, raising a voice of activism in favor of something? Just a question I put before you today. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about kids, raising kids, and the transgender agenda as we seek to parent today. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. So um, thank you for those of you who are listening and for the individual who just texted in. Just a moment ago, I'm going to address this before I move to the um, topic that I said we were going to talk about just before the break. Uh, Erica is asking um, that I help her understand and that I relate to others um, how a president who claims to value life and is supposed to be pro-life can ignore and abuse the small children in immigrant detention centers um here she 's clearly referring to the separation of, of families at the u s southern border um, and and then she goes on to say uh, t- uh, a couple of things that i 'm not um, exactly sure are the policy of the administration, so i 'm going to skip over those but she asks, how do we reconcile these disparities in our culture today um we don't we don't there's there's no you cannot reconcile um uh, all of the policies of the Trump administration when it comes to issues of concern uh, to Christians. You can't. This is not a Christian country. This is not a theocratic government. We do not have a theocracy. Um, the, the, the president is not the pastor of the nation. Um, and all of the decisions of the administration could certainly not be described as Christian. There's just no question about that. And anybody, I mean, it's a fool's errand. So I would um, openly acknowledge to Erica that I do not attempt to reconcile the wildly disparate policies and practices of this administration. Earlier this week, I had Matthew Sorens from World Relief here on the show to talk about um, the realities at the border, the issues of blocking refugees um, who have uh, from around the world who have absolutely legitimate uh cause and reason because of religious persecution to seek asylum uh, it's not even asylum to seek refugee status here in the United States we block them as a country i, I can't i can't reconcile that um as a christian i can't um and so uh, in those in those spaces and places um the the administration is um working from another set of priorities and principles those are not priorities and principles that are Dominated by their Christian worldview, those are policies and practices that are dominated by a worldview that would, um, uh, that would, could be most easily described as nationalistic. And I'm, I'm, I mean, I recently went to DC to advocate uh, on the immigration front as an evangelical Christian. And so when I ask, what would you march for? I, you know, maybe the other question is, what would you fly to Washington? What would you spend your time, set an appointment with your member of Congress? um or your member of the Senate and sit outside their office if necessary until you can just do a do a walk and talk in the hallway. Because you may not get an appointment, but you can do a walk and talk in the hallway. You can, you know, appropriately stalk them. I mean it's 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 what everybody does. Um, and so, you know, for what would you sacrifice that kind of time, energy, and financial resource? For what would you take a day off from work to go do? Um, that that is the compelling question as Christians in the culture today. If you don't like a policy of, of the administration, you need to advocate as a Christian uh, on, on the side of, of change. That, I mean, we live in a great country where we have the opportunity um, to advocate for the change that we desire to see. Okay, pivoting uh, quickly here to the topic that I told you I was going to talk about very, very briefly now. Um, there are at least six states across the country that are trying to restrict um, access to, I mean, we have talked about gender reassignment surgery. We have talked about the way that physicians are using um, drugs to keep kids from going through puberty—puberty-blocking drugs—and we have talked about parenting in the midst of all of that. Well, there are six states where um, where they are seeking to make it illegal. Um, And so the first vote happened Wednesday in South Dakota. The bill would make it a misdemeanor for a physician or any medical professional to perform gender reassignment surgery on a minor or to provide patients under the age of 16 with hormones. Um, And so I just think that these are things that we need to know are happening in the culture, that there are um, efforts out there to stem the delusional tide of transgenderism. Um, and you and I need to be supportive of those who are advocating for this kind of protection of children and the protection of parents. Uh, and so uh, South Dakota is among um, uh, among the six states where this is happening. And so I would just in- encourage you to find out what's happening in your state um, on this topic, um, see what's happening in South Dakota as an opportunity to have a, you know, sometimes we need to see what other people are doing in order to 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 understand what we might do as well. And so if this is a concern of yours in the culture, then I lift up this example. Um, you're going to see this described in the news media as trying to restrict transgender kids from getting gender reassignment treatments. Just the language in the headline, it screams which side of the aisle the journalist is on and and the publication that is putting forth the news. And so as a Christian, part of what I need to do is read the headlines um, with eyes wide open and a mind that recognizes the delusion of the generation in which we live. And so where CNN is going to say at least six states are trying to restrict transgender kids from getting gender reassignment treatments, I'm going to say there's only six states in the U.S. right now who are trying to protect kids against gender reassignment surgery and um, and the sub, the subjecting of their little bodies to puberty-blocking drugs. All right, up next, uh, I'm going to be talking with K.J. Ramsey about a really interesting story out of California. You may have read about this before Christmas. Um, there is a church called Bethel in California, and uh, a part of their leadership team, they lost their two-year-old child just before Christmas, and they spent um, a couple of weeks as a congregation Praying for the resurrection, the physical resurrection of that two-year-old little girl. Um, I'm going to talk with KJ Ramsey about the kinds of things for which we pray, um, and we're going to talk specifically about this uh, this call for this child to wake up, um, and what what we do when a miracle doesn't happen. All right, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. So for what are you praying? Um, It's possible that you are living with a chronic illness or chronic pain. It's possible that you are praying for a miracle in your own life or in the life of somebody you love. Um, What happens when the miracle doesn't come? What does that say about us? What does it say about God? What does it say about the world in which we live? And does it in any way attest to? Hmm. Well, maybe healing's not coming. M- maybe healing isn't for me. Well, KJ Ramsey and I are going to talk about that, and we are going to we are going to hopefully set the record straight. Um, healing may not come in this life, um, but healing comes, and we are going to bear bold witness to that here in just a moment. So, up next, KJ Ramsey and I talking about a church that was praying for the physical resurrection of a two-year-old who died in her bed, in her sleep, in early December. And we're going to talk about um, how we respond when the miracle doesn't happen this side of death. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
1: I'm reading from Acts 4 and verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, And perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. This is Banks Locado. What set Peter and John apart was the fact that they had been with Jesus. Could you use some high-octane boldness? Could you use some courage? Are you being criticized, mocked, persecuted? If so, imitate the disciples. Linger long and often in the presence of Christ. Meditate on His grace. Ponder His love. Memorize His words. Gaze into His face. Talk to Him. Courage comes as we live with Jesus. This is Max Locato.
0: Ramsey is an author. She is a therapist. Um, We have had her uh, on the program before to talk with us. Um, She has a forthcoming book, This Too Shall Last, Finding Grace When Suffering Lingers. Um, It releases this spring. We look forward to talking with her about that when it comes out. You can find her at kjramsey.com. KJ, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen.
2: Hey, Carmen. It is so good to be back with you.
0: So when I... um, in mid-December, learned of this situation of this family um, in California, and not only their response to it, but the response of their church to it, and then watched how this story unfolded as they prayed for the resurrection of this two-year-old little girl who died in her sleep. Um, And then when she subsequently died, you were actually one of the people who I thought, gosh, I hope KJ speaks into this. Um, and so you did. And so just share with us some of your thoughts and reflections on this situation.
2: Yeah, well, it was absolutely heartbreaking, obviously. Um, and I, I think I was especially I was heartbroken by the family's loss, but also heartbroken by the confusion that I was seeing in people around the the country and the world about what what should we think about this? What does happen when we die? And And should we pray for the immediate resurrection of our bodies? Is that good? Um, And so I I, I spoke into it a little bit because I wanted to provide a little bit of perspective about how God views our suffering as a place to experience his presence and that death is actually coming for all of us, but resurrection is too. And we have to understand that within the full scope of scripture. So that's a little bit of where I started from.
0: Right, absolutely. And that there there is an order to these things. There will be a resurrection of the body. Um, absolutely. And, and I think that we want to be sure that people hear us say that today. Um, but talk about the suffering with which you live and the unanswered, you know, prayer for a miracle that you experience. Um, and yet that doesn't wither your faith.
2: Right. So I have lived for 11 years with an incurable autoimmune disease called ankylosing spondylitis. I have pain every single day. It's degenerative, and I'll have it until I die. Unless God chooses to heal me, I will have it until I die. But I have prayed for healing. I've had hundreds and hundreds of people pray for healing over my body, but that's not been God's will for me in this body in this lifetime right now. And instead of continuing to just cry out for healing as the main response to my body's pain and my body's, my body's experiences every day, I have learned that I can experience my pain and my distress and the ways that it affects my whole life as um, messengers and as nudges to pay attention to the God who is with me and the God who actually chose in himself in the person of Jesus Christ to experience a body that would die and decay and be misunderstood. And and so my body of pain becomes a place where I can more fully experience Jesus Christ. So KJ, um,
0: when we let's just walk into the experience of a family um, like the one that is in this, you know, headline news piece. Mm-hmm. And and let's talk about our witness as a Christian in that context. Um, what do we do when people ask us to pray for something that we recognize is unorthodox, maybe one way to say say that. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but in another way, when when we're really, when we are asked, I feel this way when I'm asked to pray, I'll just confess here. There's a couple of situations where I'm asked to pray for things and I, like m- my head and heart immediately resist. And one mm-hmm. of those is when, you know, I'm asked to pray for someone to receive an organ plant, transplant, because I know that in that I'm actively praying for some other family to have to grieve the loss of whoever has to die in order for that organ for this person who's asking for prayer, you know, to to mm-hmm. get a living organ. So mm-hmm. to talk with us about the challenge that we face. I mean, that's a psychological problem for me when I'm asked to pray for something that I know also means I'm praying for harm and death to come to someone else.
2: Right. I, I think there are a lot of tensions with these situations and how we can respond to them. And I think often the the presence that we need to offer others is is one. It has to be consistent with Scripture and with the whole scope of Scripture. So it's really important that we understand how the story of Scripture works and where the where where our healing falls within the norm of Scripture. And and you know as we as we both saw um, the pastor of Bethel tried to explain to the world that they believe that that miracles are the pattern here and now always. Um, That's actually not true. That's not the pattern of scripture. That's not what we see in Christ. We see that healing and miracles are more of a foretaste of the kingdom that is coming when Christ returns. And so how we respond, how you and I respond, how listeners respond to people who are praying for healing or maybe praying for things that, that aren't consistent with how we see scripture um, has to first fall within that. We have to test what we're praying for against the whole word of God. And sometimes that means sitting ourselves right in the middle of a paradox where we we yearn for healing, we stand with people and we we cry for that, but we also ask that God would sustain people within their space of grief. We ask that God would show himself to people in the middle of experiences of death. And so it's a willingness to stand in the middle of a paradox and to gently offer someone else the calming presence of ourselves so that they can stand there too and know that Christ stands with there with them.
0: I'm talking with KJ Ramsey. She is, um, a therapist. She's also an author. Uh, we're going to return to this conversation about prayer and suffering and healing and the challenge that it is to live in broken and dying bodies here and now until the return of Christ or until we are received into the kingdom of heaven on the other side of death. That conversation continues in just a moment.
1: In the eye of the storm.
0: KJ Ramsey is here with me. Uh, You can find her at KJRamsey.com. She and I are working our way through a subject matter that is hard to talk about, but one that we need to tend to. If you want to read uh, her piece in Christianity Today, it's entitled, There's No Shame When a Miracle Doesn't Come. Um, uh, KJ, God did not hashtag wake up olive, Um, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that the gospel isn't true or that the suffering that we experience in this life is without meaning?
2: 100%. Uh, yes. God God remains with us and and death and our experiences of powerlessness are places to actually know his presence and the story of Jesus who chose those things himself.
0: And so talk about how how we tend to feel when, um, when a miracle doesn't happen or when a prayer is answered in a way that is different than the way we asked. What, what feelings um, tend to follow that?
2: So most of us have been raised and steeped in a culture that says effort produces success. And we unconsciously place that onto our faith. So we, in our deep, deep within our bones, we feel that if we only pray hard enough, it will produce the the miracle that we want, uh, the relief that we long for. And that that's not actually the, the way that Scripture works. It's not actually the way that God works. Miracles do happen, but it's not just that you pray and it happens. So... We have to begin to experience and, and turn toward the mystery that our experiences of pain, of disease, are actually places where God is working, where, where we are held within the Father's love, that we can experience our bodies not as evidence of a lack of faith that produces shame in us, but as places where God remains turned toward us and where our lives are still held within his whole plan of love and that healing is coming. So we we experience shame when we when we treat faith like something that we have to produce effort to sustain. And and we experience joy and peace in life when we accept our bodies in their broken state as places God is present.
0: So resilience is um, is an important not only word in this conversation. Resilience is the, I don't know, attribute, pattern that we need to develop. Um, some of us come by a resilient spirit more naturally, like somehow we're just wired for resilience more than others. But I think resilience can be learned Um, Mm -hmm. I know of people who have sort of learned how to become resilient. Talk about that a little bit.
2: Yeah. So resilience, I think, is part of wholeness, and it is therefore the inheritance of every Christian. But we tend to think of resilience just like we think of faith in terms of individual effort and action. But resilience, um, researchers have shown, is more of an interpersonal experience. So we actually become resilient within relationship. We become resilient not when we hide our problems or our pain, or we minimize them, we keep them from others because we're afraid of being judged by them. We become resilient when we acknowledge the pain in our lives, including the pain of death, the grief, the loss of loved ones, and the pain of disease. When we acknowledge that, we name it within community and we allow our weakness to be witnessed by others. That is what creates resilience. So the experience and the embrace of vulnerability in our lives and of receiving that vulnerability when you encounter it in someone else is actually what makes both of you more resilient and makes our communities and our churches stronger and places that look a whole lot more like the relationship of God within himself as Father, Son, and Spirit.
0: The story that um, came to mind for me um, when this conversation was unfolding in December um, about this child in California and the response of not only the parents but uh you know their church community um the the story that came to me was from Second Samuel chapter twelve, where David is praying ardently for God mm-hmm. to uh save this child um right. and ultimately i mean and he fasts he prays, he puts himself before the Lord he invites other people to pray with him the elders are praying with him, ultimately the child dies, and they're afraid to tell david um mm-hmm. and and he he sort of recognizes oh you know they're they're talking and clearly the child is dead so he says you know is the child dead and they say yes he is dead and um David's response is you know that's he gets up he washes he anoints himself he changes his clothes and uh, he goes and he worships the lord and then he gets back to the business that is set before him as the king mm-hmm. and i think that this testimony that you know when the child uh, when the child is alive right they are a sacred trust from the lord And when the child dies, it's the Lord taking unto Himself one of His own. I mean, they're a a gift, and it's a sacred trust to have them while we have them, but they're not promised to us forever.
2: Absolutely. I think Mm. that so much of faith really is a relinquishment and an acceptance. So it's a holding our hands open and not grasping so tightly onto the things that we that we love and that we want to keep. Faith has to look like having hands open and having a gaze upward towards the gaze of God that is always on us and it's always kind. It's turning towards God. Even in these experiences where our children die or our bodies are wasting away, choosing to turn towards God as though He still is good and still loves us, even in this inexplicable experience, and keeping our hands open to receive what he has for us now. That is Mm -hmm. what faith has to look like in a broken world.
0: K.J., um, thank you so much for joining us today. We look forward to the release of This Too Shall Last, Finding Grace When Suffering Lingers. Um, Thank you for joining us today as well. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You guys can find K.J. at kjramsey.com. We'll be right back. So you too, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, will one day rise from the dead. And there are um, stories in Scripture where people are raised to physically to newness of life. But it is absolutely essential that we recognize that Lazarus is not like... Walking around today among us. So, although raised from the dead to newness of life by Jesus Christ in the context of what was happening then, um, Lazarus is now, you know, presumably living in the kingdom of heaven forevermore. And that is the resurrection unto newness of life to which we all look forward. And it's won for us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. And so, as we have these conversations about prayer and faith and resurrection, and healing here and now, you and I have to have the kingdom of God in view place where ultimate healing is is going to take place that is um, that is the place where and the time the appointed time in which you and I are going to live forevermore in resurrected bodies. I cannot even describe or imagine what that 's going to be like, um, but it 's absolutely the reality of the kingdom of heaven that you and I if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, that because he is raised, we too shall be raised to newness of life. And so let me just encourage you today to uh, keep the main thing, the main thing. Be sure you are focused in on who Jesus is and what he has done. Um, and then go lead a life that's worthy of that gospel. Praying ardently for the things about which we are concerned here and now, but trusting God to be God and ultimately faithful unto himself and to do what he will do. Always um, I'm always confident that it's for our good. Have a great day, and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way, you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com.